0: Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Colossians two this morning. And I had thought that we would end a little mini-sermon series on spiritual counterfeits today, uh, but the more that I studied and thought, the more I thought, I'm going to do one more next week and hopefully balance this out. Next week, we're going to talk about in search of balance and how do you take these principles of not living your life by rules or not living your life by spiritual experiences or not living your life uh, by subtraction and what you don't do, uh, but still having some rules and still uh, limiting your flesh and still uh, wanting to have a relationship with God that does have some spiritual butterflies on occasion. So how do we balance all that out? We'll talk about it next week. But for today, we're going to give you the final of the three spiritual counterfeits. We've talked about mysticism. Uh, We've talked about legalism. Uh, Legalism would be this idea that you grade your spirituality by man-made rules that you take not God's rules, because God's rules are for everybody, but you take your rules that are yours and you need those. Like practically as a Christian, you need to have some personal standards or rules that are are for yourself that maybe you impose on yourself that are of practical benefit. Uh, Homes need to have this, churches need to have this, but when you start to to judge people spiritually by your man-made rules, that's really a negative thing. Uh, you also have mysticism, right? I get closer to God through my spiritual experiences. I want spiritual butterflies all the time. And today we get to look at the final one. But I would remind you that Paul has, for two chapters straight in Colossians 1 and 2, and if you ever want just a treatise on who Jesus is and how you should not be moved away from him, chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians are so beautiful that tell you that he is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the redeemer, he is where you want to be focused. That's where all the treasure is, it's where all the riches are. That's where all the fullness is. You don't want to be moved away from Jesus. And he's giving the church this warning that there are some things that could ensnare you, trap you, beguile you, trick you, and actually look like they were good for you, but they're not good for you. They're fool's gold. And these are legalism, mysticism, and then asceticism. And I'm well aware that asceticism is not a word that you've used probably recently, but we'll read the text and then we'll try to understand it. I'll define the word for you in a minute. So here we go. Colossians 2 verse 20. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances or to their dogma, which consists of what? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. What Paul is describing here is the counterfeit of asceticism. So let me define it, and then we'll work through it. Asceticism is self-denial as a means of attaining a higher spiritual plane. You could call it self-denial gone wrong, because we are told to deny ourselves. That's a biblical principle, but it's self-denial gone wrong. Some have called it spirituality by subtraction, and you kind of got a hint of that in the text of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, Uh, touch not, taste not, handle not. Asceticism at its core is I want to take my desires, my yearnings, my appetites that get me into trouble, And I will live this rigorous life of self-denial and I will starve those appetites to death. Now, true or false, you have some appetites, some desires that get you into trouble from time to time. True or false? True. True. Absolutely you do. So what do you do with those? How do you handle those? And some people would say, look, if I have these urges that are, are manifested in my body, you know, I want to, I want to drink a bunch of alcohol or I, that substance abuse or uh, how, I, how I'm pursuing uh, sex and sexuality. I have these things, maybe I'm gluttonous and I, and I overeat, these physical urges. Well, the solution to those physical urges would be to clamp down on them or limit them and live in such self-denial that I can starve them out, that I can eradicate them And then I won't have any urges anymore because I'll be dead and they'll all be gone. And Paul is going to do his best to tell us that that's not the way to go. And here's what he says. First, the core thought is that you don't want to trade the eternal for the temporal. So he says in verse number 22, this is a logical argument because it's rooted in Jesus. And in 22, he says, if ye then... Be crucified with Christ, or if you be dead with Christ, excuse me, verse number twenty. If you're dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, the elemental things of the world, the ABCs of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to their ordinances of touch, not taste, not handle, not? So, if you are identifying with Christ, both in His death, and then He'll say in chapter three in His resurrection, if you are identifying with Christ and you are you're dead with Christ to the world, why? Are you letting the elemental, the ABC things of the world be forced upon you? Why are you letting these man-made constructs be put on you? These rudimentary things of the world, he says in verse number 22, are at least two things. Number one, they're man-made. They are, quote, after the commandments and the doctrines of men, these elemental things of the world, because that can be a little bit nebulous. What are you talking about, the ABCs of the world or the the rudimentary things of the world? Well, we know that they are man-made constructs, commandments and doctrines of men. We also know at the beginning of verse number 22 that they're perishable, not eternal. They all, quote, perish with the using. And we can understand perishable, right? So many churches will have a food pantry, And the food pantry rule 90% of the time for churches is bring us non-perishable items. Do not bring us bananas to stock our food pantry with because they will spoil, they will perish, they will will become rotten, and we won't be able to use them. So bring us cans of Campbell's soup, bring us canned vegetables, bring us things that are non-perishable, right? They will last He's saying, why are you investing all of your time? Why are you letting them put all these rules on you when really they center around these things that that are very fleshly, that are very worldly, not worldly in the sense of like the world system, but they're just, they're physical and they're perishable. And in contrast to that, he tells them, here's what you should do. Chapter three, verse one. If you're risen with Christ, then seek the things which are above, or the eternal, or the heavenlies, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You see what he's doing? He's trying to help them not take the eternal... And setting their affection on where Jesus is, on the eternal, and putting their affection on things on the earth. He's trying to help them not be so concerned with diets and days, as he said early in the chapter, and what you're eating or not eating or what you're drinking. And all these things that are going to be, you're going to fast forward a day or two and you're not even going to remember what you ate. Why are you putting all the stock there when you should really shift your focus and shift your heart and shift your mind to focus on the Lord Jesus and where he's at and on eternal things? So at its most basic core, Paul is trying to argue that you don't want to make a poor trade and you want to focus on what is eternal, not on these man-made religious constructs, especially when it comes to, as we'll see in a minute, the idea of limiting yourself or self-denial or abstaining from some particular things that are man-made and thinking that perhaps you're going to get a spiritual advantage from that. You want to focus on the Lord Jesus. And of course, Jesus was accused in, in not exact words, but in not so many words, of being not ascetic enough. If you remember, the scribes and the Pharisees came to him and they had a bone to pick with him. And they said, Jesus... You, the son of man, you come eating and you come drinking and you are a friend of publican and you are a friend of sinners and we think you're a glutton and we think you're a wine bibber and they, they pointed their finger at him and said, you don't limit yourself enough. You don't limit yourself from, from like eating the food, you eat too much and you don't limit yourself from this crowd, you should stay away from those people and you should not do this and you should not do this and you should, you should put the clamps on yourself, there's a problem with you. What are they saying? They're saying, Jesus, you're not ascetic enough, is what they're saying. You don't live in self-denial enough. And Paul will go on to say, as we'll see in a minute, that this doesn't work. This is broken fundamentally because it moves you away from Jesus. But he goes on to articulate that asceticism comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. This idea that you would live a rigorous life of self-denial and somehow reach a higher spiritual plane. That that shape sh- <laughs> excuse me I cannot talk this morning that shape shifts over and over again and he gives us a few there's the touch not version, uh, the version there's the taste not version there's the handle knot version but there's all these versions of this and some of them are articulated in the New Testament the idea of touch not was both that. Uh, Judaizers would come along, people that wanted to take the Old Testament system and put it on New Testament Christians, that they would come along and say, no, you can't touch these unclean things or these unclean people. But it really began to grow cancerous, as you would see in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about this idea, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And he starts to apply that to sexuality and to intimacy. And he goes on to articulate in 1 Corinthians 7 that people were starting to apply this to marriages even. And we're saying, if you were spiritual, even though you're married, you wouldn't have sex with each other and you would, you would you know, not do that because you're giving into your physical urges. So limit your physical urges, even inside the God-given confines of marriage, and, and there should be no sexuality. Like it had really grown cancerous in the touch knot version. The taste knot, of course, there was all this argument about a kosher diet and whether you keep a kosher diet and what you could eat or what you couldn't eat. And over and over again, the apostles say, like, that's not binding. This isn't something that you have to do. Whether you eat or don't eat, that doesn't really matter. That's not where spirituality is found. You find even in, in the handle knot that there were certain things, dead bodies or especially meat sacrificed to idols. That's 1 Corinthians 8 that, hey, that meat was offered in some sort of pagan worship, so you can't handle that, you can't possess that, you can't touch that. It was all these rules that were popping up, and it, it was all over the place, but at its core, it was asceticism. It was, you're going to be more spiritual if you'll, if you'll just live in self-denial, no self-denial gone wrong. Now, it took me, honestly, probably less than 10 minutes. I was sitting down, I was studying, and I thought to myself, what kind of shapes and sizes does asceticism present itself to us as, as American Christians? And I came up with 10, like, I mean, rapid fire. And I, I stopped at 10 because it was like, it's, I don't have enough time in a sermon to give more than 10, but I'm gonna give you 10 different ways that you may see this pop up even in our culture. One is seclusion and retreat in idyllic societies. So the irony of this text is that it took less than 100 years for a whole system of asceticism to develop that was the monastic order. It was the monks and the monasteries. And the monks and the monasteries... All that is, is asceticism. It's the idea that I can do away with being in the world. I can do away with being around non-Christians. I can do away with eating things or even sleeping so much. And I can do this with other people who want to do the same thing and we will become more spiritual. And the monks in the monasteries on the whole, not every single one, but on the whole, there was this wholesale endorsement of asceticism. Many monks regarded it as sin to take a bath now, you can't take a bath because a bath is going to make your body more comfortable. And if you are making your body more comfortable, you are given in to your bodily urges, and you need to deny those bodily urges, the desire for comfort, the desire for sleep, the desire for anything. Don't do that. That will lead you to be an unspiritual person. So taking a bath now is a sin. You say, that's crazy. I know it's crazy, but it was there. Many early monks castrated themselves. Many of them would purposely make themselves uncomfortable in what they slept on, even what they wore. They would wear shirts with fur and things on the inside purposely to itch them. And the idea was, if I'm constantly uncomfortable and I'm constantly itching, then I'll never want to pursue those other desires because all I will be able to focus on is how uncomfortable I am all the time. I, I won't even think about you know sex or anything like that. I'll just be uncomfortable all the time. And so then I'll be a spiritual person. I'll never pursue those, those malformed desires. Many of them would whip themselves. Some went so far as to drive nails into their hands so that I could identify with the suffering of Jesus. If I could just know what he felt, that would make me be able to relate more and identify more and appreciate what he did for me more so I will do physical harm to myself. There's lots of writings in early church history, but Athanasius boasted of the devotion of Anthony. Anthony was praiseworthy because he never changed his vest or washed his feet. He never changed his clothes, he just got dirty and never washed his feet. And Tony has proudly related that such was the holy asceticism of Simon Styletus that when he walked, vermin dropped off of his body. He was so holy that vermin dropped off of him. This is how idyllic societies start. He said, I have not been tempted to become a monk. Okay. I didn't want to go into the nunnery. Oh, fine. But idyllic societies start this way, and this, is, this still happens in our day and age where people are like, you know what? What we need is to, is to be away from the world, you know, the world and all the advertisements and all the trappings and all the temptations and all the snares and all the things that are thrown at us. You know, if we just like got out of the city and got away from the temptations and we went up in the mountains and we all lived in tents and drank rainwater and grow our own vegetables and, and we have just our own little community and our own little laws where we'll make all the laws, like we'll center them on the Bible. They'll be like God's laws. It'll, it'll be like, a, like, like, a, like like God is ruling over us and then... It'll be no non-Christians allowed. Only Christians are allowed there. Then it will be this perfect place. It'll be like spiritual utopia and everything will be good then. No, it won't. Like what, what you're saying is the problem is out there. And if we can get away from out there, then everything will be hunky-dory and will be spiritual. There are some problems out there. I'm not going to deny that, but there's more problems in here. And in here is going with you. You're still gonna be prideful and you're still gonna be angry and you're still gonna want your own way and you're still gonna be selfish and it doesn't matter what idyllic society you set up, it's not going to work because you have a sin nature. If you remember uh, Jonestown and Jim Jones, the whole drink the Kool-Aid episode, quite literally, what was Jonestown? It was an idyllic society, at least it was supposed to be. What was Waco? Waco? What is David Koresh and their compound and what they're doing and, and, and what, they're, what they're making? It was supposed to be their little idyllic society, but it doesn't work. The idea of seclusion and retreat and, and trying just to get away from the world and then we'll be spiritual. No, no, no. Jesus told us, the world's going to come at you. It's going to be hard. But you're going to be in the world, not of the world. Don't remove yourself. Jesus wasn't a hermit. He didn't come into the world and then remove himself and sit up on, on top of a, a spiritual mountaintop and in, in cross-legged and just say, come to me, I'm up here all by myself. That's not how it worked. That's not how it's supposed to work for Christians. You see it in Gnosticism. I won't belabor this because Gnosticism is something that you're probably not uber familiar with, but it was in the early church for sure, and it fundamentally viewed the body as evil. Spiritual, spirit, good. Body, physical, bad. Anything physical, bad. And so they would not care for the body. They would, they would not uh, respect the body. And true Christianity has never taken that approach. Jesus came bodily in the incarnation. Jesus rose bodily. We are here bodily and we will spend eternity in a resurrected, glorified body. And as such, Christians have long understood we care for the body, we treat the body with respect. Oftentimes you'll see both a Jewish hospital or a Baptist hospital or a Christian hospital that are rooted in these systems that believe in a resurrection bodily and understand that we should care for the body. And as such, it's very fitting for us to have missionary endeavors that are like medical missions and those sorts of things because we do care for the body and we don't treat the body as evil. You see it in suffering as penance. I've seen this all over the place. But the idea is I've done bad things so I'll pay God back. I've done bad things so I'm going to live in self-denial. You know what? I had this grading system even. You know what? That, that was bad enough to where it requires me to fast for three days. I'm gonna tell God I'm sorry. I'm going to repent but then I'm gonna prove to God that I'm sorry. And I'm gonna fast for three days. Oh, that was a really bad one. I better fast for five days so that God really knows that I meant it. I had a friend in college and uh, I know she did this because I was there. We were at a a home that hosted us because we were away from our our hometowns for Thanksgiving and she fasted on Thanksgiving day. And I didn't know why at the time, although it was very curious to me, but later on I found out it was because it was this idea of like, I'm going to do penance for my sin. I've messed up and I really want to prove it to God that I'm sorry. So if I fast on Thanksgiving instead of the day before Thanksgiving, then he'll really know that I mean it. Now, anything you do to suffer for your sins or as penance for your sins or to atone for your sins is not only unhealthy, it's, it's trash. Because Christians know and believe deep down, Jesus already suffered for my sins. Jesus already atoned for my sins. Jesus already paid for my sins. The bill is paid in full. I don't need to go pay it. I, I should have contrition in my heart. I should feel bad when I, when I When I sin against him, that's not a loving thing to do, to sin against a holy God. So I should confess, I should repent of that, but I don't have to do penance for my sins. I don't have to now put the clamps on myself physically to show that somehow I'm really remorseful. That's an unbiblical idea. You see this in poverty theology? Poverty theology is the less you have, the closer you are to God, Basically. Now, the plague on our culture is the opposite of poverty theology most of the time, honestly. Like, it's very in vogue in our culture to have a health, wealth, and gospel, or health, wealth, and prosperity gospel where the more you own, the more spiritual you are, right? In our culture, there are many people that would teach, well, if you truly had God's favor and you were really doing things the right way, if you were really spiritual enough, then your bank account would definitely have more money and you would definitely have a nicer house and you would definitely have a nicer car. And we do this game, which is the opposite end of the spectrum, but it's almost the same game of judging your spirituality by what you have or don't have, which is unhealthy but it was a wildfire in the early church to judge your spirituality based on what you don't have. Well, if you were really spiritual, you, you definitely wouldn't eat that. That's way too nice of a meal. You definitely wouldn't live in that home. That's too nice. You wouldn't drive that car. I know they didn't have cars in the early church, I understand, but you get it. This idea that you put guilt and shame on people because they have something nice or they have money in their bank account. I thought you really loved missionaries, you know? I mean, think about all the missionaries you could have supported with the amount of money if you just would have bought a used car instead of a new car. I mean, you probably could have been a better steward. What are you doing? Well, you're doing a form of asceticism and you're doing a form of poverty theology where you're more spiritual by the less that you have. Buddhism, of course, would have this as part and parcel of the religion. Buddhism is really dedicated to limiting yourself or afflicting yourself so that you can be more spiritual. And if you've ever been curious about the orangey yellow robes and the bald heads and what's all that about, don't be curious, I'll I'll save you the time. It's asceticism and it doesn't work. Minimalism, This is very in vogue in our culture. I don't know if you picked up on this, but there are books and there are podcasts and there are Netflix shows and there are things popping up all over the place dedicated to minimalism. I watched one of them this last week called uh, Less Is Now. That was the name of the show on Netflix. And this is not like me paraphrasing what they said. This is their quote. This was the headline of the show. We are going to teach you how to downsize your way to happiness. Now, downsizing your way to happiness is nothing more than asceticism. Minimalism will say, you are afflicted with a disease called stuffitis. You want more stuff all the time. And you think you're going to buy your way to happiness. You're just going to purchase this and purchase this. And you're uh, going to upgrade your home and your car. And then you're going to have closets that are full and attics that are full and fridges that are full and garages that are full. And you're going to run out of room there and then you're going to get a storage unit. And your storage unit's going to be full and you need another storage unit. And... and that's not gonna to lead to happiness. And on that note, minimalism is dead right. That is very true that many Americans have stuffitis and they think that happiness and peace is gonna come from their stuff. So that is correct. But what minimalism will say is the key to happiness is not your stuff, it's divesting yourself of all that stuff, and then you'll be happy. And it's so circular. It's like you were unhappy and you looked over there and said, the grass is greener and there's all these things. So I'm going to go buy those and then I'll be happy. Right? So minimalism is now coming to you and saying, you're not happy here, are you? And you're saying, no, I'm not happy. We'll come back over here where you don't have very much anymore. And then you'll be happy. This is where you started. Remember you were already over here and you weren't happy here in the first place. So don't come back here. The solution is not having stuff or divesting yourself of stuff. You're not going to find happiness in either one of those places. It's a a fool's errand to think that you can minimize your life to peace and happiness deep down. You're not going to. You may may have more closet space. You may have less credit card bills, which are probably good things, but it's not going to lead you to happiness. You see this in the Amish? The Amish way of living is very ascetic. It's very much... Let's, let's try to get ourselves away from the world, away from technology, away from electricity. And once again, there may be some practical benefit. Like, hey, we don't have cars, we have horses, so we all have to live close to each other. So it creates a greater sense of community. All right, cool. But if you think that not driving a car or driving a horse and buggy is somehow gonna upgrade your, your life spiritually, that's not really where spiritual health is found. But the Amish are very ascetic. Catholicism certainly has a, has a version of this. What is a vow of poverty? What is a vow of celibacy that the nun or the priest will take? Well, that is rooted in either A, I'm a very spiritual person, I'm spiritual enough to take these vows and that'll keep me spiritual, or probably, If I take these vows, that will put me on a path that will get me closer to God, and I will be more spiritual because I don't have all the stuff, and I I have a vow of celibacy. That doesn't work. That is asceticism at its core and it leads you away from Jesus. This is, if you read 1 Corinthians 7, the question that is posed to the apostle that was floating around the early church is, you know, Paul, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? Or you could put it this way. Would it be a good thing if like there was just no like sex at all? Should we just do away with that? Is that unspiritual? And Paul is sure to give a very balanced response. And he's sure to say, look, that could be a good thing. Like it couldn't make you spiritually light-footed if you are not married or have a spouse or have children, it could give you more time to God. But he goes on, like the whole rest of the chapter, to say, many people can't do this. This, this is not for everybody. And then he especially addresses those that are already married. And says, if you're already married and you're trying to impose this on your spouse and be like, hey... Pastor Dom said, next step Sunday. I know that they had like baptism and groups and teams and that Bible study stuff, but let's, let's really up our game spiritually. Let's just be abstinent for like two years. But that's, that's what's going on. And one spouse is like, this is spiritual. We should live for Jesus. We shouldn't care about physical urges at all. He should have all of our heart. And Paul goes on to say, don't do that to each other. He says, Stop. If you wanna take a season and both of you agree that you wanna pursue some spiritual stuff or you wanna pray and fast about something, that may be fine, but that, that is not, you're gonna defraud each other and you're really gonna mess up your marriage if you take an ascetic approach to sexuality within your marriage. And chapter eight is no different when he talks about meat and drink and all these people that are trying to say, no, you can't eat that and you can't do that and you can't touch those meats that are sacrificed to idols. And he gives his grand conclusion in chapter eight, verse eight, where he says, "Meat." commendeth us not to God. You think you're gonna earn favor with God based off of your diet? Based of what you eat or you don't eat? That's not how it works. He goes on to say, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Look, eat the bacon, don't eat the bacon, who cares? Eat plant-based, eat you know, carnivore diet, and eat meat all the time, who cares? God don't care. It's not going to commend you to God. You're not going to be more spiritual. You're not going to get a a higher plane. If there's some practical benefit for you to eat plant-based, or there's some practical benefit for you to do a carnivore diet, or for you to do whatever diet you want, knock yourself out, but don't think that this is a spiritual conversation. It's not a spiritual conversation. But there were those that would say, no, we have to limit this. We have, we have to take this away. We have to take this away. We have to take this away. We have to, and this is how we're going to be spiritual. Do you find this in the separatist movement? The separatist movement is anything that isn't overtly spiritual, that's like comes out of church, then we should separate from it. If there's any hint that this is not like overtly spiritual, if there's art, but it's not art like about Jesus on a cross, then, I mean, definitely we don't want that art. If there's any music, but it's not music that is just 100% about God and how much you love him, then you definitely shouldn't do that. You know, star-spangled banner, there's no spiritual intonations in that. So let's, let's be done with that. If, if, there's, if there's anything that comes from society, you know, a pastor didn't make Facebook. Some, some guy, some worldly guy made Facebook. And so we definitely shouldn't have Facebook. Get your face in the book. You know, there's, there's all of these things that you just want to get away from, get away from, get away from, get away from all the time. And, and once again, it's not to say there's no practical benefit to any of that, but it is to say that if you think that you're going to find like spiritual health and spiritual maturation from that, you're chasing the wind. This has certainly popped up in a lot of Baptist circles, at least that I grew up in, that there was like this, come to church, sure, but there was like this whole subculture that was like, let's do everything at at church. And it was this, it was kind of like idyllic society meets separatists rolled into one. Hey, you're going to put your kids in little league basketball. Don't put them in the community, little league. You know, there could be some non-Christians there. Who knows what they may say to your kids. Let's make sure we have basketball league at church. And let's make sure we have church at church. And let's make sure that we have school at church. And let's make sure that we have a grocery store at church. And let's make sure if you want work on your house done, we have a list provided of church members, roofers, plumbers, electricians, all church members, because you would wanna hire a saved person, right? You wouldn't wanna hire someone to replace your roof and give them your money because who knows what they'll do with that money. They probably won't tithe on it. They probably won't give it to God. They're probably gonna go, I don't know, get drunk and drive drunk and kill somebody. You wouldn't want that on your conscience, would you? So hire a church member, one of our church members, and it becomes this like increasingly insular subculture. And once again, is there anything wrong with having a basketball league at church? No. But if you're doing it based off of the premise that if I put everything at church and I limit my access to the world, you're getting super close to Jonestown. And you're trying to be ascetic in your approach and create this little monastery of sorts, thinking that that will produce someone who has a heart for God. There's way more to it than that. So asceticism comes in separatist movement. It also comes in what I just call the frown face movement. Uh, The people who want to unplug the spiritual bouncy houses, you ever met these people? Most of them are ascetics. The people who think that like you can't have fun and love Jesus at the same time, you know what I'm talking about? They're like oversaved. They're constantly like, you can have no joy, right? Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, he also was a life of the party sometimes and kids wanted to like crawl on his lap and be around him. And last I checked, kids don't want to be around grumpy people. Like, yes, there was sorrow and he was acquainted with grief, but there was also good times. But we just need to be sober-minded. We do need to be sober-minded, but there's also like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But there are some that are so, like everything is so serious but nothing can ever be fun and you feel bad to smile in their presence as though you're not spiritual enough. As like they want to subtract joy and fun and smiles from the Christian walk. We actually have, if you ever come to our Intro to Harvest class, which if you're even remotely new, you've been around a week or two weeks or six months, I would strongly recommend it. You'll get to know the church so much for that class. It's a great hour of your time. It's one hour. Next one, I think, is first week in February, and uh, our pastors rotate and teach through it. I'll be teaching uh, the February one, so go online and sign up for it. We'd love to see you there. But we cover quite a few things. One of them is we cover some cultural axioms, or just some cultural values that are important to us as a church. I've been a part of a lot of churches that had the same doctrinal statement, but they felt very different from each other. It wasn't because their doctrine was different. It was because their culture was different. So one of the cultural axioms that we give people in Intro to Harvest is that we laugh loud, hard, and often. And under it, it says, we're as glad as the tomb is empty. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. For yesterday we were dead, which was a quote from the early church. And it's it's deliberately put in there for those that would maybe come to Intro to Harvest and are like, I want to come to church and not have a good time. It's deliberately meant to say like, no, that's not who we're going to be. We're not going to be so ascetic that we can't laugh. And we've actually heard from many people like over the years, like, I love that you put that value in there because the church I went to was just a bunch of people walking around with, with measuring, you know, sticks, measuring everybody, judging everybody. There was no joy. There was, there was no fun. And it was just like, you know, you felt like you had a dark cloud over you when you went to church. And to be fair, there are times where repentance is heavy or someone dies and that's serious and somber. Those moments are for sure there, but there should be joy. There should be joy in Jesus. We should eat, drink, and be merry for yesterday we were dead, as the other church would say. Now, I could go on and on to articulate different iterations of this, but the most helpful and terrifying verse in probably the whole chapter is the one that I haven't covered yet. It's verse number 23. It is so profound and so wise, yet also very scary. And here's what he says. He says that if you embrace this, it will not lead to health. It will actually lead to like spiritual implosion. I put it as coming soon to a legalist, mystic or ascetic near you, spiritual implosion. Verse number 23, which things... What things? Well, the things he just talked about. The legalism, the mysticism, the asceticism, the things that he said would beguile you, the things that he said were enticing, the things that he said were made of men and man-made constructs. Those things indeed have a show of wisdom. That's important. On the surface, they may look good. It would appear as though this was wise. You might think it was smart to put your eggs in the basket of more rules. You might think it was a good idea to chase spiritual butterflies left and right. You might think that it was, it was really a fantastic move for you to say, no, I'm gonna live rigorous self-denial less, 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 less all the time. There's a show of wisdom and it is in Three things, will worship, humility, and neglecting of the body. Describing the three that he's already articulated. That's a summary of them. Will worship is my ability to keep all my man-made rules. I twist my arm behind my own back and I impose more rules on me and more rules on them. And I can keep those rules because I have a strong will. Humility, he already talked about in mysticism. He called it false humility. This idea that, you know what? I don't know why God blessed me, but he gave me a dream and he told me what you should do with your life and who am I? But I mean, I'm I'm just thankful that he chose me. This false humility that really is prideful. Then he talks about neglecting of the body, the asceticism. That may appear to be wise, but listen to this two phrases together. It is not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And that phrase is profound. There is no honor there. There's no honor. It is not noble. It is not honorable. It is not praiseworthy. It is not awesome. That somehow there's honor in all of your man-made rules and all of your self-restraint and all of your willpower and all, all of your spiritual experiences and these sorts, it, that, there's no honor there, but it is in fact to the satisfying of the flesh. And that's the scary part what you are supposed to be eliminating, you are actually going to satisfy. All of these external rules are not going to control your internal urges. Your internal urges may just in fact get worse. You are not going to find spiritual freedom spiritual satisfaction, and spiritual health in these things, there isn't honor. It's actually going to satisfy your flesh. This will devour you. This will hurt you. Now that, that is so unbelievably profound. For him to articulate in no uncertain words that you can change your environment all you want, but you are not changing your heart. You are not getting to the root. All you're doing is mowing the weeds and you may look good for a minute, but those weeds are coming back. You didn't pluck them out. There's, it's going to, it's going to hurt you. I'll put it this way. You know this to be true. And this is some of the, some of the more blunt things I've ever said to you, but it is what it is. There is a reason why those who took a vow of celibacy are most known for pedophilia. How'd that work? I mean, mean, you limited yourself and you kind of locked yourself away and you didn't have all the world's goods and you took this vow of celibacy. You're going to be a more spiritual person, right? Read those words. There's not honor there. And it's going to be to the satisfying of the flesh. It's going to take whatever desires you had in the first place and there's a strong chance that it's going to malform them even more and you're going to be worse off for it. Lest I pick only on Catholicism, let's go Baptist. There is a reason why the pastors or the church members who had the most rules and walked around and judged everybody and forced rules, 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 rules on everybody, Fast forward the clock 20 years and all of a sudden books are being written about them, and documentaries are being made about them, and everybody's talking about them. And come to find out Captain Rules over here was embezzling money from the church to support his meth addiction that he shared with his prostitute. There's these crazy stories that you hear that are like, what are we talking about? Like, not only are we like, two steps removed from where we thought we were. We're 16,000 miles removed from where we thought you were. What was happening? Colossians 2 was happening. This isn't going to lead you to spiritual health. There's not honor there. It's to the satisfying of the flesh. It is not actually going to work. So what is the solution? If you read the book of Colossians, Paul is abundantly clear You keep your eyes focused on Jesus. You understand that real health is found in him. You set your affection on the things above. You don't concern yourself so much with all of these externals that you lose sight of what is happening inside. And if you want a picture of this, and I'm done with this. If you want a picture of this, you just go look at the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. He would tell you, on the outside, they look like whited sepulchers. They look real clean and they look, they look real nice, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. They got all these rules and all these externals and all the things that they're not doing and they're limiting themselves and they're, not, they're observing the Sabbath and they're not gonna work and they're this and this and this, but inside there's dead men's bones. And he tells a story actually in Luke chapter number 18 about a Pharisee who stood and he prayed. And he was like, God, I thank you so much that I'm, like, I'm not like those heathen people. I mean, you gave me, I don't know what the situation was, but you gave me a good mom and dad and, and thankfully through your grace, I got your word. So I am just so glad I'm not like those people, which is pride. And he goes on to say, I fast twice a week. <sighs> Eat not, I limit myself. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I follow the rules. I'm generous and I, I, I give. But there's this publican, right? this heathen that's standing afar off He wouldn't wouldn't so much as lift his eyes up unto heaven, but he smote his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One man who had all the externals. I fast, I tithe, I know the Bible, I go to church, I'm buttoned up, I got it. And the other one who's like, God, I am a mess. Would you be merciful to me? And what'd Jesus say? One, not two, one walked away justified. One of them did it the right way. And it wasn't the one who tithed and fasted and did all the stuff. It was the one who from his heart said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So what do you do? Simply put, you live in the freedom of the Spirit under the truth of his word in relationship with Jesus. That would be my best summary that I could give you. You live in the freedom of the Spirit under the truth of his word in relationship with Jesus, that you can't improve on that. There is no upgrade. There is, there is no rule. There is no experience. There is no limit yourself to this or self-denial that is going to improve on freedom in the spirit under the truth of his word in relationship with Jesus. You can't beat it. So don't try. Don't try. Stay laser focused on that and on that alone. <laughs> Fundamentally, All of these ways of of spiritual thinking, all these spiritual counterfeits have either me at the center or Jesus at the center. Me and my ability to keep my rules, me and my experiences and my visions and my dreams and my tongues and my whatever it is, me and my suffering and my self-denial, or Jesus and what Jesus did for me. So one more time, live in the freedom of the spirit under the truth of his word in relationship with Jesus.